And now hear the word of God from Luke's gospel, starting in chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. After this, Jesus traveled about from town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Hope you're well this morning. I'm so excited to have Laura here painting. She'll be worshiping through her art and tying it into our sermon message this morning. Laura is actually Grace's sister, so this is just want to introduce you to Laura. She's Grace's sister over here. So it's okay to be looking at her and looking at the art while that's happening. So, you know, I won't be, you know, it won't bother me that you look that direction. So you're welcome to do that. This morning we're continuing um, through the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things Luke wanted us to experience and know Jesus is the way Jesus encounters people throughout this book. This morning our passage involved two major encounters. One with the sinful woman and the other with the Pharisee. They're brought into contrast with each other in a way that you would miss the point of the message if you don't get the contrast. You don't see the contrast between these two characters. But before diving into this story, I want to make one point about Jesus in the book of Luke that was revolutionary for the time. It's his view and interactions with women. Erica shared this quote and the following points with me. And this quote says this, if you ever wonder what God thinks of women, look at Jesus' interactions with women. 
When reading over Jesus' interaction in Luke, there are a few things that have stood out, and this is, once again, Erica who shared this work with me. Number one, Jesus had genuine relationships with women, and we get a window into some of these friendships. You see Martha, Mary, and Mary Magdalene seem to speak with him confidently and intimately, not as someone on the outside or the other. Number two, Jesus continually defends women against their accusers, who are normally religious men in power. Three, Jesus esteems women and gives them dignity. Four, Jesus looks compassionately on women and the obstacles they face in their society. And five, when Jesus teaches, he uses examples that speak to both men and women. And I wanted to point this out because this is countercultural for that time. This is, not just, this is revolutionary for that time period. And Jesus was an anti-establishment kind of, kind of person here. And he was intentional. And Luke is intentional about pointing these stories and these encounters out. And I'm so grateful for the radical nature of the gospel. And I love how at the very end of this section of the passage that we read, it doesn't have to say this, but it's so intentional about naming the women, esteeming the women who are traveling with Jesus. We have this story here of this sinful woman. That's the way the world wants to see her. This sinful woman, but it ends with not just her going in peace, but it ends also with the disciples and these women who managed and supported financially these men. This is a powerful, powerful, intentional move of Luke to show who Jesus is. So now let's dive into this passage. First of all, we have Simon who's a Pharisee. He's a member of the religious and cultural elite. He's invited Jesus to a major kind of a formal banquet. Now remember, Jesus is opposed by the Pharisees. So there's a question that comes up is why did Simon invite Jesus to this banquet? It doesn't seem that he was looking for any issues to accuse Jesus of because we don't see any arguments that are actually happening between Jesus and Simon. Also, it seems that he didn't respect Jesus all that much because he didn't give Jesus the basic etiquette of hospitality that you normally would give someone, like kissing, the washing of the feet, the anointing with oil. He didn't do that. Maybe Simon was curious of Jesus. Maybe he heard about this Jesus guy. He, he taught God's word. He, he saw some miracles. So there's some signs. He heard about miracles and signs happening. So maybe he wanted to just be like, who is this guy? What's he about? Maybe he wanted to show off himself by having dinner and having a guest like Jesus there to be like, oh, look how cool I am. I can tell Jesus is my dinner partner. We don't know exactly why, but here's what I would like to think. I think he was curious. He was a Pharisee, but I think he was seeking to know about this supposed teacher, this miracle worker, this guy who's doing things that all the people were talking about, this guy who's teaching things that were contrary to what he grew up learning. He was a seeker. He was curious. Jesus accepted his invitation willingly. In fact, Jesus accepted other actual invitations from Pharisees in other parts of the book. Jesus went to the Pharisee Simon's house and he reclined at the table. So let me paint a picture for you guys. To recline at the table was a Greek custom which the Jews adopted for festive banquets. Those who were at a banquet, they kind of reclined at the table with their heads toward the table and their feet away from the table and they were laying on their left arm. You know, with their heads toward the table on a pillow. With their bare feet turned away from the table. 
Does that make sense? You guys got the image with me so far? Which I feel like my left arm would get so sore and like fall asleep in two seconds. But that's just me. I'd have to shake it out like every, every five seconds here. But that's what they did. They kind of climb on their side like this so their right arm was free to grab food, but their feet, which was the smelly part, was away from the table. You guys, what's this image so far with me? Okay. And their feet were turned away, and that's where all the attendants and servants were, the, the, kind of by the feet. So when you had a formal banquet like this, there would be a lot of people actually walking around. Not just the servants waiting on the table, but actually people from the street, the public, could actually come into a banquet like this in a major home, and they could actually watch and see what was being served. They could actually walk into the courtyard and dining area and see what was happening, which is crazy to think about. Could you imagine, like, you guys are throwing a dinner party and people just randomly walk into your house and be like, what you eating? That looks good. Just be weird. But that's the way it was in that part, and that's the way it was done in that culture. Well, because of this, it was possible for this woman to approach Jesus without getting noticed. So here is this woman at Jesus' feet, but who is this woman? Unlike Simon, a member of a cultural and religious elite, we're told she was a, a woman in a town who lived a sinful life. That was her title. Woman in sinful life in that town. Literally, it says that she was a woman of the city. What's a woman of the city? It says she was a sinner. Well, okay, what else? Most Greek scholars who know something about how these kind of expressions come together say that they felt like this meant that this woman was a prostitute. That's what the woman of the city meant. You know, the term woman of the city or a woman of the night, what we would say nowadays. She might have been a streetwalker. She approaches Jesus, and she's about to do something. She wants to put perfume on his feet. Literally, she's carrying this perfumed ointment, and she came ready to pour this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And the question now you ask is why? Well, if you know anything about that culture, that climate, and that environment, you put perfumed ointment on your feet because it's a luxury. It would soften calloused feet, it would clean dirty feet. It would make smelly feet not smell so smelly. It would soothe and bring comfort to tired feet. In those days, you're walking around in sandals everywhere, and you're walking everywhere. You're not, you're not driving in cars. You're, you don't have socks. So you're walking out in sandals all day. There's droppings. If you know what I'm talking about, animal droppings in the street. There's dirt. It's just dirty, hard, and smelly. So to put oil and perfume on your feet was a luxury, was a treat. And she wanted to do it. And if you look at the way it tells us in the story, we're told that before she could do it, something happened. Something happened. Now, first of all, let's, let's talk about what she brought. She says she brought alabaster jar of perfume. That means she wanted to do something. But before she had a chance to do it, before she had a chance to pour this perfume out, she just found herself weeping. She got overwhelmed with emotion as she came up. So she has this perfume and she's ready and she wants to pour it on Jesus' feet. He just, Jesus probably didn't even notice her at this time. He's, he's reclined this way, his feet are this way. He's talking to people and she comes up to Jesus' feet. And I want you to get this image and she's about to pour it open. But before she does, she's just overwhelmed. She weeps. Not just one drop, not just two, not just a little squeeze of liquid out of her eyes. It's so much so that it actually can cleanse his feet. She's weeping. She couldn't even do what she meant to do. This is probably the first time that he would have noticed it when, she felt his, when he felt her tears. 
He felt something soft falling. He probably turns and looks at her. And at that point, probably everybody's like, oh, Jesus is turning away from the conversation. What's happening? So they all turn. And instead of bolting away, when, when she's discovered, when she's discovered, instead of running away, she kneels down and she lets down her hair. No, that's a huge no-no. At that time in that culture, woman, a hair's, woman's hair was her glory. And you wouldn't let it down in public. But she undoes her hair and she wipes his feet dry with her hair. Then kisses his feet, pours perfume on his feet. This is an extravagant act of love and worship. But it's actually even more extravagant than that. I want you to get this. You see, when this woman comes to Jesus, she comes giving everything. How do we know that? Tim Keller shares this about the alabaster jar. We're told that it's an alabaster jar. It's very specifically, it's an alabaster jar perfume. It's a very specific thing for Luke to mention. An alabaster jar was a small flask of perfume. It had a very long, skinny neck. And that neck made it almost impossible for it to actually be poured out. It was so narrow. But you could smell it. And it was small, and most women kind of wore them around their necks. They were very expensive, but they were an incredible accessory of fragrance and beauty. Because in that culture, the smell and the sight made a woman very attractive, very desirable. If you ever wanted to pour it out, you had to break the neck. Then once you poured it out, it was useless, it was done. Do you realize what she's doing? Occasionally, I found sermons and commentaries point out that the fact that what she was doing was very expensive, economically, it was very expensive, especially for someone who is single, socially marginalized woman, a prostitute, to give something that's that expensive, very much in places, other places, when something like this is mentioned, it talks about the cost of it. Well, it's financial sacrifice, but guys, I want you to see how for this woman, it was even more than just being expensive. What was she doing? She was giving all that she had. She was giving all her power. What does a prostitute have in a world like that? Where is her power, where is her worth found? Her only power, her only capital, her only leverage in life was her desirability, her attractiveness. And what does she do? The thing that symbolizes that the most, she takes it off, she breaks it, and she pours it out. What is she saying? She's saying, if you are who you say you are, Jesus, if you are who I believe you are, then that changes everything. And I'll come and I'll lay down my power, what I think is my worth, my thing that I'll live for, my esteem, and even my identity in this world. I give you all of it if you are really who I think you are. I'll give you everything I have. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you sort of want to. Maybe you're seeking something. You've heard about Jesus, maybe you've even seen people changed by him. And you want fulfillment, you long for purpose or the, the, the confidence that other people might around you might be having. Maybe you feel that you're missing something. Maybe you're like this woman who thinks that all this, her whole worth, identity, just the way she's known in the city can't be all that there is. So maybe you hear that maybe Jesus can actually see you. And maybe you're here thinking for the first time, hopefully, can I really be seen and known? Can I tell you something? He does. He sees you. 
just like he saw this woman, not as a street walker, not as a sinful woman of the city, but as a beautiful image of God she was made to be. And then she, in response to that, can't help but offer everything that comes empty, full of everything that she has, her worth, her identity, her power, her leverage, and says, this is nothing, nothing compared to you. Jesus, I need to know you. And if you're here, let me tell you, that is the posture, that is the exact posture that you need to come with. And he sees you. And he gives you something miraculous in turn. Now, let's contrast this woman's experience, this encounter with Simon the Pharisee. Now, I'll acknowledge that it might have taken bravery for a member of the ruling class, for a Pharisee, to come and welcome Jesus. Simon welcomes him openly, invites him to not just talk, but actually come to a meal, which in those days, to invite someone to a meal to your house, to go out of your way, to invite somebody to a meal of your house, basically you say, my home is your home. That's hospitality. It's basically saying, let's have a relationship. And so at great possible risk, Pharisees hating him, social kind of, kind of going not advancing, people not liking him, he actually invites Jesus to his home and says, I want some sort of relationship with you, Jesus. So I want to commend Simon for saying, yes, he's seeking. He's heard something. He just, he wants to know who is this Jesus. He was a serious seeker. And I think she was a serious seeker. And we don't have a contrast here between a person who's interested in Jesus and someone who's hostile to Jesus. We don't have a contrast between people who are just indifferent or care about Jesus. Instead, we have two people who are very interested in kind of knowing who he is. One, Jesus rebukes, and the other, he accepts. Simon approaches Jesus in a completely different manner than the sinful woman. He approaches with his own merit and worth. You see that... You can see that's in the way Simon is thinking. Notice, for example, as soon as the woman touches Jesus, we get told what Simon is thinking. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. What is Simon thinking is, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, I want to know about this Jesus. I got him over to my house. I'm going to get a feel of who he is. But if he knew, I mean, if he really was a prophet, if he really knew, then he'd be like, ooh, why are you letting that woman touch you? So either you're a, a prophet that knows and then you're unclean, or you don't know, so you're not a prophet. So you're not smart. Do you get what I'm saying? He's stuck in this place where Simon's like, what, what do I do with this? Because in his own idea, his own approach to life and religion and way to get to God is that that is sinful means unclean, that you, you stay away. Don't be around. He puts his own righteousness and knowledge above Jesus' actions. And I love that Jesus deals with both seekers and tells each of them exactly what they need to hear. It's astonishing to me that Jesus turns to Simon. He says to Simon, Simon, she wept over me. She hugged me. She kissed me. She anointed me with oil. And here's Simon sitting here, is that what you want me to do? You want to weep over you, to hug you, to kiss you? That's just weird, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yeah. That's exactly what I want. He's saying something, you don't get it, Simon. You don't get the personal need. You don't get the love. You have this head knowledge of of, of a righteous God, but you don't get the relationship that I'm offering you. That is different. 
It's different from these rules and regulations that you think you obey. It's different from these customs that have set you apart from all these other people. The customs that have, have put down people and said, you can't be like us. It's about knowing and loving and worshiping Jesus. And you're missing it, Simon. You're missing it. So he goes into this parable for Simon to understand. He says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the better debt forgiven. You have judged correctly. And the first thing that he's trying to show Simon is that what Simon does not understand, like this woman understands, is that he needs a savior. What's so awesome about this parable is that there are two people and they both owe money. If they can't pay, then they're gonna lose everything. In those days, if you can't pay, you'd go off into prison or you'd be kind of put into indentured servitude. Nowadays, you go to bankruptcy, but the reality is they both owed. No matter how far it does, it doesn't matter if you can't pay it. You can be 10 million, it can be 10,000. It doesn't matter if you can't pay. Everybody owes and no one can pay. And that's the point that he was trying to make with his story to Simon, is that it doesn't matter whether it's 10,000 or 10 million, you weren't able to pay it. You think you could, but you couldn't. Tim Keller often shares this illustration. If a poisonous spider comes in and bites you in your sleep, so you never wake up and die, or if a lion comes in and mauls you in your sleep, which of these people are more dead? And that's what Jesus is trying to say. One of them is pretty dead, the other one might be ugly dead, but you're still dead. They're both dead. Simon might be what we consider a pretty dead. Simon is a person with the 50 and the woman is a person with the 500. And that's how Jesus is drawing this. Simon's led a nice, moral, upright, religious, blessed, you know, upper middle class, wealthy life. Very respectable. The woman's led a very broken, very messed up life. And what he's saying, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter, you're both lost. It doesn't matter, you're both dead. You see, Simon doesn't understand the cost. The other reason that this woman realizes intuitively what Debbie doesn't get is the cost. Salvation here is seen as forgiveness of debt. Economically speaking, guys, forgiveness of debt always means somebody pays, okay? Just the way it is. It just means that the debtor doesn't pay. That means the creditor pays. Forgiveness never happens without somebody getting hurt. If you wrong me and I make you pay, you're hurt. If you wrong me and I don't make you pay, then I hurt. Somebody needs to pay, am I right? If I loan you $1,000, James, right, and you don't repay, and I'm like, oh, it's okay, James. What I'm literally saying is I'll suffer the $1,000 loss, not you. He doesn't owe me $1,000, it's okay. Do you understand that Jesus is trying to say the only way for anyone to know God is this idea that if you're dead, the only way to know is if somebody takes the debt, if somebody understands the cost. And Simon has no concept of that. Honestly, the real reason Simon isn't weeping, isn't letting his hair down, isn't ripping off and giving everything precious in his life to Jesus is that he doesn't see the cost, he doesn't know the cost. Honestly, that's the reason why we don't weep. 
the reason why we don't let our hair down, the reason why we don't rip everything that is precious to us and lay it at the feet of Jesus is because it's the, religion why our, it's the reason why our religion is far more like Simon's than it is hers. It's the reason why I say that most of us relate much more to Simon than we do to this woman. So we don't know the pain of searing loss. We don't see the nails. You don't behold a man upon the tree. You don't acknowledge that it was your sin that held him there. The sinful woman did. She loved deeply. Simon didn't. I remember when I was um, in college, school was kind of easy. And I, got, like, I got a scholarship to go to the University of Florida. I, got, I had a full ride scholarship, academic scholarship, and I was going to school. And um, I was a terrible student. I'm just gonna be honest with you, I was a lazy student. Worse than a lazy student. I intentionally didn't go to class. A lot. This is, mind you, a repentance. This is not a bragging, please hear me, this is bad. Don't do this, kids. <laughs> Growing up in a household that was my, like my household was, grades were a huge deal. Identity was found in my parents being proud of me and understand that I did well in school. And so when I had to tell my mom that I lost my scholarship because my GPA dropped too low. Also understanding that my parents were very poor. We didn't have money for school. I took a lot of pride in the fact that I wasn't costing a penny for my parents. But then saying, mom, I need money for school. That was one of the hardest things I ever had to admit. And honestly, I went to my parents thinking, oh man, how could they ever love me? How could they, how could I do that to them, first of all? And I remember telling my parents, and obviously my dad was really upset, my mom was crying. <laughs> but I remember receiving their love and their support. I remember them handing me the money to go back to school that would cost to go to school. I knew how hard it was for them to make money, how hard they worked. I knew the cost. And my heart was moved. My people, my people, I tell you that there is a God who loves you so much that he paid the cost. He paid the cost. And that should move you to tears, not just because you feel bad, that's one element of it, but that's not the element that he wants, that's an element that you started, but then you move from that element to say, oh, how great is the love of God for me. That's where I moved into. I keep my parents broken and repentant. I said, Dad, I'm so sorry, Mom. I'm so sorry. But they hugged me and they loved me and they accepted me. And I said, how great is my parents' love for me? How great is the love of God for you? Are you moved by it? 
Does it lead you to weep? Does it lead you to put your hair down, to offer everything that you're worth, everything that you hold dear, and say, this is nothing compared to you, compared to your love for me. I'll give everything. Do you see the cost? And T. Wright says that for Luke, true faith is what happens when someone looks at Jesus and discovers God's forgiveness. The sign and proof of that faith is love. True faith is what happens when you see that forgiveness. You look at Jesus and you see that forgiveness. You see that love and that comes out of that is love. What did this woman get? What did this woman get that came to Jesus and poured herself out? I love first she gets an ability to love that she didn't have before. When Jesus says her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, this could be misleading for some people. They can misinterpret that to say the reason she's forgiven is because of her great love. That is not what it's saying. Right after that statement it says, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. What Jesus is saying is that she's not forgiven because she loves much, it's the opposite. She has the ability to love now because she's been forgiven. This is a remarkable principle for us to understand. Do you see, we who understand how much we are forgiven can love others so well because our forgiveness produces love. We don't see ourselves as better, we're all debtors. We all need Jesus. My people, look at your love and forgiveness. Are you like Simon or are you like this sinful woman? One got a rebuke, the other received everything. Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. She receives all she needs for this life and the next. She's seen, she's forgiven, she is loved, she is called. My people hear this well, don't miss this. We need to face and embrace our own sinfulness to understand the depths of the love of Jesus Christ. Do not think of ourselves better than we should. Know yourself and know your need for Jesus. In that need, know the great love of a saving God who knows you and loves you, forgives you, and calls you. How can you not weep? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before you. We weep before you over our sinfulness, God, over our need. And we acknowledge that, God, you are God, the God who responds to our need, the expression of our need. You are a God who God, who wants us to come in such a manner that acknowledge our sinfulness, and that's how you respond. God, not like the Pharisee who comes out of merit and their own self-worth or this idea that they can earn anything, but in need we come to you, and you move mightily. God, will you move in this place? We move in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.